I wanted to, uh, before I, I uh, jump in this morning to uh, the text, I did want to uh, let you know about something. Uh, we have a sign-up sheet uh, out on the info table on uh, uh, April 11th. We're going to be doing a Southwest Spring Picnic, and so we're going to be having an Easter egg hunt. Uh, it's going to be a time where you can come, and, and we're inviting families from all around the neighborhood to come and uh, bring a picnic, and we're going to have games. Uh, I've heard there's going to be a cornhole tournament. Uh, there's going to be spike ball. There's going to be all sorts of cool games. We're going to have uh, drinks and snacks, uh, but uh, people can bring their own lunches. We're going to have an egg hunt for the kids. Uh, so it's going to be uh, right out there at uh, the Jefferson Field. And so that's going to be on uh, April the 11th. But we need Easter eggs filled. And so what we're asking you to do is to sign up for a slot. Uh, each slot that you sign up for, you're uh, committing to bring 30 Easter eggs filled with candy. So, like, not the Easter eggs that you dye, like the plastic eggs filled with candy. So, if we could get just, I mean, if we could get even half the people in this room to commit to bring 30 eggs, we would have more than enough eggs. So, ultimately, we're looking for 30 people to sign up to bring 30 eggs. So, on your way out, if you'd be willing to do that, if you could sign up, sign your name on there, and then you can bring them on a Sunday morning. Or you can also, uh, you can bring them if you come to prayer night on Wednesday night, or you can get in touch with myself or Carrie uh, and uh, arrange to meet us at our office, which is across the street. You can always drop them off in the middle of the week at the office, okay? So appreciate it if you guys would help us out with that, because I just really don't want to try to pack a thousand eggs by myself. That would take a long time, so... Um, so we are uh, on the last week of a little mini-series uh, talking about the church. And so last week we talked about the structure of the church. And this week we're going to be talking about the mission of the church. Um, a, mission, a mission statement is a, a summary of, of why an organization exists. If you had a personal mission statement for your life, it would be kind of a summary of why you live, what you're living for. So... I'm curious. Actually, I want to do a little thought experiment. I just want you to, to, to you know, think about this uh, to yourself for a moment. But if you were going to write a mission statement for your life, what would it say? Why do you exist? What would it say? Think about that for a second. If you were to write a mission statement for your life, why do you exist? Why are you on planet Earth? What, would that, what is that mission for you? What if I were to tell you that God actually has a mission statement for your life? It's actually found right here in the mission statement of the church. Thomas talked about it earlier. Pillar DC's mission is glorifying God by helping people know Jesus and make him known in DC and around the world. If, if you are a Christian, then your mission is to know him and to make him known. Did you know that? That that's why you're put on earth. You're put on earth to know Jesus and to make him known. And if you're not a Christian, that's actually why you exist too. You may not realize that right now, and you may not even agree with it. Because like all of us in this room once have at one point in our lives, you have been spending your life running from God. But you were made in God's image to glorify him and to be in a relationship with him. You were made to know your creator and to proclaim his glory across the earth. So if this is the mission statement for our lives, knowing Jesus and making him known, then we need to actually know if we're, if we're actually living it out, don't we? I mean, we should, we should understand what that means because it's easy for us to, to throw language like that around and to not even really understand what we're saying. 
What does it look like to truly know Jesus? What does that mean? Is it just knowing facts about his life, his death, his resurrection? Is it just believing and and just kind of going to church? Or is it more? And what does it look like to make Jesus known? What, What is that? Is it having a fish on your car or giving money to missions? Making sure your coworkers know that you go to church? Like saying Christian words really loudly in the workplace? This passage that we're going to look at, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, I think better than just about any other passage, gives us a wonderful picture of what it looks like to know Jesus and to make him known. And as we walk through this passage this morning, what I want you to do is I want you to ask yourself, first of all, do I know Jesus in this way? And secondly, I want you to ask yourself, have I... Am I making Jesus known? Have I responded to the call of discipleship the way that we see Simon Peter respond in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11? So we're going to go ahead and read the passage. It's going to be on the screen behind me. We're in the book of Luke. It's the third book in the New Testament. It's after Matthew and Mark, and it's right before John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're in chapter 5. Uh, The words will also be on the screen behind me, so if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along uh, up there, okay? This is Luke 5, 1 to 11. This is the Word of God. It says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, that's Jesus, to hear the Word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Let me pray. God, I pray right now for your help. I pray that you would help me to, um, to clearly preach and to teach your word. I pray that you would help all of us to listen to what you have to say to us this morning. God, to be be able to see you the way that Peter saw you with new eyes in this passage this morning is something that can only be wrought by your spirit. Something only you can do, God. I pray that if there's anybody in here this morning that has never seen you, like that, that today would be the day that they realize that Jesus, you are God, you are Savior, you are Lord, and you are worth leaving everything behind to follow. And I pray that you would remind all of us 
in here who are believers, who are Christians, of the mission that you've called us to and how worthy you are of that mission, Jesus. We love you. I pray that you would help me now. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you got your outline, uh, basically two parts to this sermon. There's knowing Jesus and making him known. And the first eight verses of this passage give us an amazing picture of what it looks like to come to know Jesus. And that's our first point here. So in this passage, Simon Peter becomes a disciple. He goes from being an interested spectator and a fan of Jesus to to being a follower of Jesus. And it's all because he comes to see Jesus for who he truly is. So at this time, to kind of give you the setting here, Jesus' ministry was already underway. We see in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus had been going about. He was proclaiming the kingdom of God. He was healing the sick. He was casting out demons. And uh, he came to the lake of Gennesaret, which is also called the Sea of Galilee. And he asked to use Simon Peter's boat because the crowds were so large, they were pressing in on him. As I was reading that, just again this morning, I'm praying for the day when we have crowds of people pressing in to hear the word of the Lord in D.C. Amen? So, so Peter had likely met Jesus before, um, and we, we know that because of some of the other gospel accounts. So there's four gospels that all tell the story from different eyewitness perspectives, okay? And so most likely Peter had heard about Jesus, had probably seen Jesus at some point. But at this point, to, to Peter, Jesus was just a great teacher. And it was probably a great honor for him to have this popular teacher want to use his boat, I mean, that would be pretty amazing, right? Like, wow, I get to sit right next to him and watch this spectacle as he teaches the crowds. And I mean, rumors at the time were even starting to swirl that maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this is the great leader who could liberate Israel from Rome and bring Israel into a new day. But Peter still didn't understand the full nature of Jesus' identity. That was about to change. In verses 4 to 5, after Jesus gets done teaching, he says to Simon, he says, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answers, Master, we toiled all night. We worked all night and we didn't catch a thing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. Now, I want you to think about this scenario for a second. This is Jesus, For what they know is that Jesus is a carpenter. This is a carpenter who's just gone up to a professional fisherman and began to give him advice on how to catch fish after he's been working all night. That would be like me, you know, going up to Mike Sobolik to give him advice on Chinese-American relations, right? Or to go tell Thomas how to build, a, you know, a solid foundation for a building. Like, I have no business going and telling them how to do their jobs because I don't know anything about those things. There The fishing experts had already worked all night, and they had caught nothing. And they knew the conditions weren't right to catch fish. There was just no way they were going to bite. But Peter decided to let down the nets anyway. There was something about Jesus and the way that he spoke that caused Peter to take a small step of faith. And that small step of faith towards Jesus changed everything. Look at verses 6 to 8 again says that when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they had to signal to the partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they, so they says they filled two boats full of fish, so full of fish that the boat started to sink. I mean, this is a miraculous catch of fish. 
The message is clear. This is no ordinary teacher. This is a divine act of God. The events that took place in these first eight verses help us answer the question, how do we truly come to know Jesus? And to do that, there are things about God that we need to see. And when I say see, I'm not talking about seeing with physical eyes. Nor am I talking about understanding with the knowledge of the mind. Remember, there were a lot of people around Jesus that day, and there were a lot of people around Jesus all the time. Many people saw him, but only Simon Peter, James, and John saw him with eyes of faith on that day. And they saw him in a way that changed them forever. There's an important principle here. You can be around Jesus and his people. You can go to church, be born in a Christian family, even read the Bible a lot, and not know him. You can know a lot about Jesus and not know him. I remember in my early 20s, realizing that other Christians around me seemed, seemed to know Jesus in a way that, that I didn't. Like I said I was a Christian and they said they were a Christian, but they ta- the way that they talked about God and the way that they talked to God in prayer, it was almost like they knew him personally. Like Jesus was their friend, like, like God was their father. And I used to write that off as just, well, they, they just take Christianity more seriously than me. You know, like they've got the platinum membership and I've got the bronze, right? Like there's different levels of discipleship and I'm just, I just don't want to take it that seriously. They've, they've taken this thing a little too far and I'm just going to kind of stay where I'm at. It wasn't until I was 24 years old that I realized that there was a reason that there was a huge difference in the way that they talked to God and the way that they talked about God and the way that I did. It was because they knew God and I didn't. I wasn't a disciple. I was a Christian by name only. I didn't truly know God and it was evident because my life looked more similar to the world than to those Christians around me that were clearly bearing fruit. So my question for you this morning is, what about you? What does your life resemble? We need to see Jesus with eyes of faith like Peter did that day. Now, you may be tempted to think, well, it was the miracle that made the difference. It was the miracle. That's why Peter believed, because he saw, if I would see a miracle, I would believe. But many people saw Jesus perform miracles and refused to believe. Miracles and signs won't change our hearts. We need God to give us eyes of faith, and he does that by his grace. Now, there's three specific things about Jesus in this passage that we need to see with eyes of faith that Peter saw that day. The first thing you must see with eyes of faith about Jesus is you need to see his power. Peter immediately recognized Jesus' divine power as soon as the nets began to break. This was no sleight of hand magic trick. This was God commanding creation and creation obeying. Peter and the disciples didn't fully understand Jesus' deity at the time, and they, and they won't understand it fully until after Jesus dies and he, and he raises from the dead. But what was clear to them in that moment is that Jesus commands creation, and creation obeys his word. This was no ordinary man. Jesus has come from God. Because only the creator can command creation and make it obey. 
Jesus is God. He is not just a great teacher or prophet. Hebrews chapter 1 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. This is the word of God that spoke galaxies filled with trillions of stars into existence. Inside the largest, one of the largest of those stars, it's called the Canis Majoris. Did you know that inside the Canis Majoris, you can fit three quadrillion, 730 trillion Earths inside one star? Three quadrillion, 730 trillion planet Earths can fit inside one star. The surface temperature for Canis Majoris is 6,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Our minds cannot fathom this. And Jesus Christ, the one that was standing in the boat with Peter, effortlessly just spoke it into existence with a word. He said, let there be light. And it was. Three quadrillion planet Earths inside of it. (laughs) And And not only that, that's just one star. Did you know that there are 100 billion stars in our galaxy alone? And right now, the Hubble telescope can see a hundred billion galaxies. A hundred billion stars in each galaxy. A hundred billion galaxies. And they're estimating that in the next few years, as the Hubble telescope continues to see farther and farther, that there'll be at least another 200 billion galaxies that are going to be discovered. The God who effortlessly created these was in a boat with Peter. No wonder he had to say, fear not, right? If Jesus doesn't make you a little bit nervous, you don't know him as well as you think you do. He's not a Swedish blonde man, you know, with flowing hair, carrying baby lambs around. (laughs) He's God, and he came to dwell among us. We need to see his power. We also need the eyes of faith to see Jesus' holiness. You know, it's striking that Simon Peter's first response was it to say, wow, look at all these fish. Like, I'm rich. <laughs> this is the greatest business day of my life. He didn't say that, did he? He falls at Jesus' feet in a, in a boat filled with fish, mind you. Like, he just like falls down in the midst of these fish. It was probably a mess. And he says, depart from me. Peter found himself in the presence of holiness, and he knew it. Peter knew that Jesus was sent from God. And here's a very important principle to understand. When you see Jesus for who He truly is, you'll see yourself for who you truly are. When you see Jesus for who He truly is, you'll see yourself for who you truly are. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says that in Jesus, in Him, all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. Jesus is Yahweh, the great I Am. He's the same God who... Before he appeared to Israel at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, he warned the Israelites, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. That's not a different God than the God of the New Testament. It's the same God. One God, three persons in the Holy Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is absolute and total purity. He has no rival. No one and nothing compares to Jesus. No one is like him. He is the only God. His holiness is like the sun. If you stare at it, if you stare at the sun, it's going to kill your eyesight. 
That is why Peter instinctively says, please leave, rather than can you be my fishing guide from now on? Because he knows he's in the presence of holiness. The same thing happened to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. You remember Isaiah? He, he has a vision of God on the throne surrounded by angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And his response, Woe is me, for I am done. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. When you encounter God, that's the response. Like Isaiah and Peter, you must come to the place where you despair of your own righteousness. You must realize that all of your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Even our good deeds are tainted by sin and impure motives. We, love, we, we like to think well of ourselves. We like to think that maybe we can measure up to God. We me and uh, several of the guys and some of the students that are here from Cedarville University went out yesterday uh, sharing the gospel with people. And, and, and you know, we, we talk to people and we encounter people and everybody's trying so hard to be good. Everybody's trying so hard to be good and to earn their way to heaven. Well, what you've got to realize is that you can't earn your way to heaven because even the good things that you do are tainted by impure motives. No matter what we do, we can't make ourselves righteous or clean. When we see Jesus' holiness, we become aware of that. We become aware of our own sinfulness. Let me ask you, have you ever had that Peter in the boat with Jesus moment in your life? Have you had your Isaiah, woe is me moment? Do you believe that your own righteousness can never earn your way to heaven? You must get there before you can hear the good news that's coming. You've got to realize that before you can receive the good news and hear it for how good it truly is. Once you have eyes to see His power and His holiness, you'll have eyes to see His grace. You'll have eyes to see His grace. Peter, a sinful man, is standing before Almighty God. He's beside himself. He knows it is dangerous for a sinner to be in the presence of a holy God. But what does this holy God do? What does he say? He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. How can he say that? Why would he say that? Because not only is he powerful and holy, but he's gracious and loving. He's able to forgive guilty sinners because He came in the person of Jesus Christ to die for our sins. Romans chapter 5 verse 6 says that Christ died for sinners. When Jesus died on the cross, he did so to take the judgment of God that we deserved in our place. He's the perfect sacrificial lamb who is our substitute. He gave his life to redeem you from the bondage of sin and from death. And by faith alone in Jesus Christ... You can be forgiven and set free. That's the good news of the gospel. Do you believe that? Do you believe that good news? Do you see Jesus' power, His holiness, and His grace with eyes of faith? You know, seeing with eyes of faith is a gift from God. Jesus says in John 6, Nobody can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Our sinful hearts are hardened against God. 
No one will come to God unless God gives spiritual sight. Peter had no idea he was about to encounter God that day. He was an uneducated, common fisherman. He was a sinner and he knew it. But like a heat-seeking missile, the Son of God came into Peter's life and obliterated everything, including his sin and his hard heart. He changed Peter from the inside out and he gave him a new identity and a new mission. He said, from now on, you'll be catching men. Praise God that he has regard for lowly people like me and like Peter. Praise God that he is willing to save you no matter who you are. Amen? Have you trusted in Jesus this morning? Do you see him with eyes of faith? If so, you can, you can trust in him for the first time today. You can confess your sins to God. If you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead on your behalf, you can be saved. But you need to understand that this decision is a call to live for a new mission. This decision to receive Jesus' forgiveness is a call to discipleship. Or as Jesus put it to Peter, catching men. We need to know Jesus and then we need to make Him known. It's the second part of the outline, making Him known. And what I want to do first, I want to draw your attention to the priority of the mission. Look at verse 11, Luke 5. It says, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed Him. So that was Peter's response to the call to discipleship. Peter sees Jesus for who He is. He comes to know Him. He sees Himself as a sinner. He sees Jesus' holiness. He sees Jesus' power. He sees His grace as Jesus says those gracious words, don't be afraid. And then He receives the call to follow Jesus on a new mission. And that mission takes priority. You know, Peter could have invited Jesus into a business partnership to be His permanent fishing guide. Could have split the proceeds with Him 50-50 and had a lucrative company. But he didn't do that. Why? Because in that moment he realized that fishing didn't really matter. Nothing else matters when you encounter the most glorious, beautiful reality in all the universe. As an aside, by the way, this is why the prosperity gospel is an abomination. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Uh, There's a song by a Christian hip-hop artist named uh, Shia Lin, and one of the lines in that song is, if you're coming to Jesus for money, then he's not your God. Money is. If you're coming to Jesus for anything other than Jesus, then you don't yet know Jesus. If you're coming to Jesus because you want him to make your fishing business lucrative, you don't yet know him and see him as you ought to see him. Because when you see Jesus, just like the old hymn goes, the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious grace. Nothing else matters in the light of Jesus' glory. Everything else fades away. He's our treasure. He's the most beautiful reality in all the universe. We don't come to him to get stuff from him. That's the essence of sin. We come to him for him. Because he's the points. It's all about him. It's all about his glory. That's why you were created. And once you know him, it's only natural to tell others. You know, telling people about Jesus, making disciples, evangelism, however you want to describe it, that's not just one of the many aspects of being a disciple. That's literally the mission of every Christian. I'm going to say a statement that's going to sound heavy, But I want you to think about this because it's true. If you are not fishing for men, you are not following Jesus. 
If you are not fishing for men, you are not following Jesus. Think about this. When Jesus calls us to follow him, that means that we are to do what Jesus did. So what did Jesus spend his time doing? Well, he called people to repent of their sins and to believe the good news about the kingdom of God. He warned people of coming judgment, but he also warmly invited sinners to forgiveness. He met the needs of the sick, of the unclean, and of the outcast. He was constantly with his disciples. He poured his life into equipping others to also fish for men. That's what Jesus spent his time doing. And as his followers, that's what we are to spend our time doing. That's what we're to leverage our life for. That's what discipleship is. Brothers and sisters, if we are to call ourselves followers of Jesus, then we will do what Jesus did. I mean, just think of how Jesus summarizes discipleship. He says, I will make you fishers of men. Or think about the Great Commission. When he gives the command, he gives the the mission to the church in Matthew 28, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. But what I'm pleading for you to do this morning is to not fool yourself and genuinely ask yourself, am I actually following Jesus? Am I doing this? And if you're not, I'm urging you and exhorting you to start doing so today. When you become a Christian, Jesus' priorities become your priorities. His desires become your desires. The example of the Apostle Paul is so convicting for me. I I thought a lot about this passage and it really impacted me this week. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 9, he's writing to the church in Corinth. And he's talking about how he, he says, I've become all things to all people. That by all means I might save some. And so what Paul is describing, he says, to the Jews I became as a Jew, to those under the law I became as those under the law, to the weak I became weak. Basically he was saying, I'll do whatever it takes if it'll help win people to Jesus. If I gotta go without food, if I gotta be in the cold, if I gotta leave my house, if I have to be uncomfortable, whatever it takes, if I have to, you know, stop eating this type of food and whatever, I'll do anything if it'll win people to Jesus because that's my sole mission. He laid aside his own rights and his own comforts to remove any potential stumbling blocks to the lost being saved. His singular goal was to see the lost saved because Paul understood that every single soul will live forever. Either in heaven, in the presence of the Lord, where there will be eternal, exquisite joy beyond comprehension, or in hell away from the presence of the Lord, in the gloom of utter darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, and where Revelation 14 says the smoke of their torment rises forever. You know, part of me feels ashamed that I can even preach about that and say that without tears. And one of the things that I've been um, just dealing with God on this week and praying about is that, God, I pray that you would break me for the lost. That I wouldn't be able to stand up here and say that without tears. That we wouldn't be able to think about hell. That we wouldn't be able to think about judgment without it moving us in the very core of our being. Not so that we just cry, but so that we go do something. So that we go tell them. So that we go warn them. So that we go bring the good news of the gospel. 
Our spiritual senses are too easily dulled by the distractions around us. We need to pray that God would give us the conviction of the Apostle Paul. So Paul goes on a couple verses later in 1 Corinthians 9 to use the analogy of a world-class athlete who disciplines his or her body in all things for the singular goal. Let me, I just want to read this passage to you. He says, um, he says do, you know, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You think about how world-class athletes train. They never stop training. I mean, if you want to win the gold medal at the Olympics, you have to eat, sleep, and drink your training 24-7. They literally have training complexes where they go live full-time. And from the time they wake up to the time they go to bed, everything is focused on their training. Every decision that they make is made through the lens of, will this help me or hurt me towards my singular goal of winning the prize? Everything that they do is filtered through that. And that's how Paul calls us to approach the singular goal of winning people to Jesus. What Paul is saying is that the mission of every Christian is to make Jesus known. The prize that we are aiming for is not a wreath that's going to perish or gold that's going to fade. It's the imperishable wreath of lost people coming into the kingdom of God and having eternal life. And so he says, run that you may obtain it. Run to win. In everything that you do, do it with the question, will this help or hinder winning the loss to Jesus? I mean, think about even the little things in your life. I started thinking this week about, you know what? If I eat junk all day and then I stay up late in the night watching TV and maybe watching shows on Netflix, that they're not that bad, but there's violence on it and stuff like that, and then I wake up groggy in the morning, do you think that it's likely that I'm going to be out and about first thing, I'm filled with the Spirit looking for people that I can share Jesus with? No. So the time I, what I put in my body matters. What time I go to bed matters. What I, put, what I intake into my mind, what I watch on TV, what I listen to, it all matters. It's not irrelevant. I love Doug's testimony from earlier because I know that, that Doug doesn't just go to work anymore with the goal of editing videos. Doug goes to work thinking, how can I win my coworkers to Jesus? And he's the first to tell you he's not perfect, and neither am I. But he's changing. And he's fighting to focus on that prize. And that's what I'm calling all of us to do. Is to fight to focus on that prize. Yes, you're, you're going to be tempted in your flesh multiple times throughout the day to focus on yourself, to take your eyes off the goal. That's why it takes discipline. You think these Olympic athletes like waking up at 4.30 in the morning? You think they like eating, I don't know, whatever it is they eat that doesn't taste good? Probably not. There are many reasons that, that Christians struggle to fish for men. For some, it's fear. For others, it's not knowing how. Maybe because nobody's ever really modeled for you how to do it or what that looks like. 
And at Pillar DC, we want to make sure that you're equipped. One thing I never want to do is stand up here and tell you, hey, guys, God has commanded us to go and do this. We need to go out and do this and then say, good luck. Hope you figure it out. No, we want to equip you. We want to make disciples. So one of the things we're doing is we're having a gospel conversation training this coming Saturday, March the 7th, from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. Five hours? Yes, five hours. It's a worthy investment, especially if you just lead one person to Jesus. One person. Is it worth it? If just one person comes into the kingdom in your lifetime, is it worth five hours of your life? Absolutely it is. Let me urge you to come and get equipped. Even if you've been through the training before, we're actually going to be teaching some new things and giving you some new tools. And also, like, I don't just want you to come and learn. I want to come and I want to equip others of you to go out so that you can go and equip others. You guys should be doing this training. You should be training others. So let me encourage all of you to come. Uh, There's a sign-up sheet on the info table uh, we're going to feed you lunch. We're going to feed you lunch, so make sure you sign up, and uh, we'll make sure we have food for you. So please make the commitment to come this coming Saturday. We're going to be meeting at 800 Main Avenue, uh, where our offices are. It's an opportunity to get equipped and get the tools that you need. Now, before we close, um, we do need to talk about the power of the mission, the power for the mission. Because we can be fired up and disciplined if we want to, but guess what? We're powerless to save anybody. We're powerless to save anybody. You can't change a heart. I can't change a heart. It doesn't matter how effective your gospel presentation is. It doesn't matter you know, how much you practice. None of that stuff. Only God can change somebody's heart. And this passage makes that clear. In verses 5 to 6, you notice that Peter tells Jesus, Master, we've been fishing all night and we have taken nothing. But at your command, I'll let down the nets. And when they let down the nets at Jesus' command, what happens? They bring in so many fish that the nets are breaking. That gives us a very clear picture of the difference between fishing for men in our own strength or in God's strength. This is the difference between working for God and God working through you. God saves people by His power. He empowers us for the mission. Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Only God can save someone. Only he can give the eyes of faith to believe. But we still have to listen to Jesus and throw the net over the other side of the boat. We have to proclaim the gospel. See, in God's sovereignty, he has chosen to save people through the preaching of the gospel by his people. All we're called to do is sow the seed, is share the good news with people, and God, by His Spirit, I don't know exactly how this works, it's a miracle that's wrought by God, but God takes that word as it is shared, and He begins to sow it into the hearts of the people who hear it, and He's the one that gives the eyes of faith. We have nothing to do with that, we can't make it happen, and it's not on our shoulders to make it happen. God's not asking you to bat a certain percentage of people that say yes to the gospel, in fact, there was a missionary named Adoniram Judson in India. Did you know that he was in India preaching the gospel for seven years before he had his first convert? Seven years. Was he a failure? No. Why was he successful? Because every day he was faithful and obedient to what God had called him to do. He went and shared the gospel every single day. God is sovereign over the harvest. If you want your friends and coworkers to be saved, though, you must share the gospel with them. It's not enough for them to know that you're a Christian. That's not going to save them. They need to hear the gospel. 
Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful. The fish are there, but we got to let down our nets. Have you ever, uh, I'm just wondering, just curious, have you ever gotten to lead someone to Jesus? There's no greater joy than being the instrument that God works through to see a sinner come home. There's nothing better than that. And what's so encouraging is that if we'll just step out in faithfulness and in obedience to God, that we'll have the joy of seeing God work through us to impact the lives of other people. And you don't have to do anything. It's not on you. God's not asking you to work for him or to perform for him. He's just asking you to be faithful. And since it's only by God's power that sinners can be saved, one of the most important things we can do is pray. One of the most important things we can do is pray. And um, we can bring our lost loved ones before the throne of God, and we can petition him for their salvation. I'm going to ask the worship team to to head up front um, right now, and that's actually what we're going to do. Also, I want to ask... Uh, the ushers, we're going to pass out some uh, blank index cards to you guys real quick as we wrap up. So what I want you to do is as the ushers are coming around and passing these blank index cards out, uh, I just want you to write the first name, just first name only, of somebody in your life that you know is far from God. Uh, maybe, you know, somebody who's not a believer or, you know, maybe they claim to be a Christian, but you're not really sure where they stand. Somebody that you're praying for that they will come to see Jesus the way that Peter saw Jesus here in the boat. And what I want you to do is I just want you to write the first name of that person on that card, and then we're just going to take a moment, and I'm just going to let you pray for that person in their seat. And there's a Bible verse behind me on the screen, Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19. You can pray this passage uh, over, uh, over your loved one. Ezekiel eleven nineteen says, God says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. So you can pray that prayer over your loved one. And then what we're going to do, so we're going to write these names down. I'm going to give you a moment to pray. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to actually get up from your seat when you're ready and come to the front. And I want you to just put that card with that name here on the stage. And this Wednesday, we have our all-church prayer gathering. And we're going to pray by name for every single one of those names. Right? The reason that we're keeping it first name only is to protect the privacy of people, but God knows who they are, and we're going to lift their names up on Wednesday night when we gather at Main Ave at 7 p.m., and we're going to pray for each one of them that God will give them a heart of flesh and remove the heart of stone. Amen? Amen. So um, let me pray uh, real quick. Well, actually, let me let the, uh, the cards uh, finish getting passed out and give you guys a moment to fill those out. Why don't you guys go ahead and take time right now to write that name down. Think about who God wants you to pray for. Just in your seat, take time to pray that God would save your friend, your family member, your coworker. Give them eyes of faith. Take out that heart of stone. Give them a heart of flesh. you're finished praying, I'm just going to ask you to go ahead and get out of your seat, come forward, put your card right here on the stage as you feel led and as you're ready. Father, 
Just think about each one of these cards up here and how they represent a loved one, a family member, co-worker, friend. Somebody right now is separated from you. They're blind spiritually. They're lost. They're in their sin. And God, we are coming before you and we are petitioning your throne on their behalf. We are pleading with you in the name of Jesus for their salvation. We're pleading with you, O God, that you would take out their heart of stone and put within them a heart of flesh. God, you have said that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. God, we are pleading with you that you would give us the boldness to go and to share, to let down our nets, to throw our nets over the side of the boat. God, I pray that you would compel us to go and to share the good news of Jesus Christ with these names, with these people on the stage. God, I pray that as the gospel is shared, that you would do the miracle of regeneration in their hearts. God, I pray that you would burden us for them and that you would keep us up at night, that we would wake up in the middle of the night, that God, to pray for them. God, that we wouldn't be able to rest easy knowing, God, that they don't know you. Lord, I pray that we, you would help us to make as the mission for our life, as the top priority of our life, winning the loss to you, Jesus. God, I pray that in the days to come, we would see one of these names after another, after another, after another, after another, repent of their sins and come into the kingdom of God and that they would be right here in this room worshiping with us, lifting their hands in praise to you, King Jesus. Let it be so. We love you. We thank you, Father, that you are such a merciful and gracious God. Thank you that you saved us from our sins. And Father, I pray that if there's anybody in this room right now, God, that has not fully surrendered their lives to you, who has, anybody, anyone who has never said, okay, Jesus, I'm done running. I don't want to be this person anymore. I'm tired of, I'm tired of being stuck and lost in my sin. I'm tired of, of, of living this way. I want to be changed. Please come and change me from the inside out. God, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning and that's them, I pray that right now, that they would give themselves to you, that right now they would place their faith and their trust in you, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would leave out of this place a new creation and a new person, never the same ever again. God, by your power, would you do it and would you get all the glory and honor and praise, Jesus. God, we love you. We thank you for meeting with us this morning. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Let's stand and let's close our time of worship by singing songs of praise to Jesus.